cause. God is fighting on his side and everything is going so well. And like all people that are in the midst of a glory spell, it's time for him to take a well-deserved break. So he sits back, he kicks his feet up while his army goes off to war. But idle minds breed idle curiosities. And one night, while he's sitting alone on the roof of his palace, he gazes out and sees something that catches his eye. In fact, not just something, someone. She's taking a bath, and King David likes what he sees. A quick exchange of messages, and before you know it, David and Bathsheba are spending the night together. A one-night stand. Who would know? A moment of indiscretion. No one is hurt. I mean, there's some minor details. She's married, I mean, to one of the members of his army. He's out fighting, so no big deal. I mean, David's married too, right? Who cares about one little indiscretion between two consenting adults? Except then the news comes. She's pregnant. Oops. A bit hard to cover that one up. Oh well, time for a plan. So David sends a message off to Uriah. Time to come home. Spend some time with your wife. Have your reward for fighting hard. And then when you've slept with her, the child and with uh, some clever juggling of a pen and dates can be yours. But Uriah won't have a bar of it. Instead, he spends the night with the servants and didn't even go to see Bathsheba. I mean, how could he? when the rest of his army were out fighting. So it's time for plan B. Send Uriah out to the front line of the fight on a bold and daring mission at the king's command. But make sure that it's a suicide mission with no chance of survival. And then, when Uriah's out of the way, David can marry Bathsheba. All good, no harm done. David is doing the honorable thing to a war hero's widow. This plan worked out much better for David than his first one. He orchestrated it to a T. Uriah was killed in battle. They mourned his death, and then David married Bathsheba, and she gave birth to a child. Great! Job done! I mean, (laughs) sure, there were some little problems along the way, a bit of sin there, a bit of misdirection here, but who was really hurt? David got what he wanted, didn't he? But there is this little snippet at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? David thought he'd got away with it, but God knew. He saw everything and he wasn't pleased. David probably thought that he had avoided the public scandal, the judgment of his peers, and most importantly, being caught out. But God knew. The prophet David, Nathan came to visit David, and he told him a story. He said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man 
and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now David was furious. He burned with anger. He said, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And then Nathan told him these words, you are the man. God had made David king of Israel. He had given him all the wealth and glory he experienced. And he had defied the Lord's commands and sinned against God. David was flawed. He had thought he'd gotten away with it. He thought he had it all together. But God knew his sin. And it's in this context that we come to Psalm 51, which we're looking at today. Gripped with the guilt of what he was, has done, David wrote this psalm. And the introductory notes tell us all we need to know. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So let's read it together now. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at the time of my birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saved me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Our Lord God, as we come to your word today, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear you speak. We pray that you would challenge us as we look at the magnitude of our sin that you would confront us with our need to repent and that we would once again wholly and fully trust in you for our salvation and forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what do we see in this psalm? Well, firstly, we see that David takes the blame for his actions. Look at how often he uses the words me, my, or I when he's talking about his sin. Have mercy on me, O God, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. David fessed up to what he had done. He didn't try to deflect or push his sin onto someone else. He didn't seek to hide away from the reality that he had stuffed up. He knew that he had done the wrong thing. He knew that he had tried to cover it up. He knew that he needed to look inside himself and admit that he was wrong. But this can be really hard for us to do. We can know that we're doing the wrong thing and we just try to cover it up. We hide it away. We don't want to see ourselves as sinful. We don't want to acknowledge that we are in fact broken on the inside. And when our conscience pricks us, like what happened with David, we seek, fi- we seek to find ways to cover it up. We justify our actions or to out- isolate what we are doing as not really all that bad. And so we shift the blame. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we look for other people to blame, pointing out that they did something that led us into our actions. We find ways to blame external forces or authorities. We become indignant How dare our sin confront us with our actions? I mean, we're generally good people. We do lots of good things. We give to charity. We serve in our church. We helped people last week. We hide away our sin. But inwardly, it still eats us. It continues to fester inside of us. The guilt builds and grows because despite all our efforts to hide our sin from ourselves and God, we still know that we have done the wrong thing. And acknowledging it hurts. Outwardly, we might be playing the part. But inwardly, we know that we are wrong. But look at what David says in verse 6. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. God desires our character to have integrity from the inside out. He wants us to acknowledge our sin and to truly recognize that it inhabits and permeates our entire being. The truth has to come out. What we've buried away needs to be exposed. The cosmetic cover-ups, the feeble excuses need to be abandoned. We need to admit that we are wrong and face the immensity of our guilt, wickedness and depravity. And that's what David did. He lays it all bare. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. David didn't hide away from it. He knew his sin was always there. He recognized it and owned it before God. And he confessed it to God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But did David sin against Uriah? Didn't David sin against Bathsheba? Well, yes, he did. But ultimately, David sinned against God. And God's judgment is serious. God is the ultimate judge. And David knew that. He wrote, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Sin is not just an ideological concept to be debated. Sin is real. And it is objective. Sin stands between us and God, and God is not some indifferent or eternal force or principle. God is personal and God is holy, and when we sin, 
we are standing and putting a barrier and an obstacle between us and God. Because God must judge. His holiness demands it. His very character requires it. He must seek a punishment for the wrong that is done against him. And it is right, it is his right to do so as the creator and Lord of the universe. And so, when David acknowledges his sin, he does so because he has realized that while he has wronged others, it is God first and foremost who he has acted against. We, like David, should understand that our sin places barriers between us and God. We, like David, should understand that he must judge our actions and our deeds. Because ultimately, it is God's standard for living that matters, not our own. Perhaps you can find a way to justify your actions. Perhaps you can carefully walk around your sin by qualifying the things that you have done. Perhaps you can come up with a hundred reasons why the things that God is saying are wrong shouldn't be wrong in your particular case. But it is God who judges. It is God's standard that matters. And any excuses are just that, excuses. So confess your sin. Recognize your guilt. Like David, and tell God, the creator of the universe. I mean, he already knows your sin and has seen it. It's not a surprise to him. When you confess, he won't say, oh, thanks, I missed that one. He judges our thoughts and hearts, our minds and our attitudes. And once we've confessed, we can seek his mercy. David has seen himself as he is, and he has seen God as he is. And so David begs for forgiveness. He knows that he has angered a holy God who is judge. And he desperately wants and needs God to forgive him. He wants God to be merciful. Look at what he says in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. In verse 2, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. In verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. In verse 14, save me from blood guilt, O God. David asks God for mercy. He asks God to blot out his sin. He asks for God to wash away all the wrong that he has done and to cleanse him. He asks God to hide his face from his sin because he knows that God's judgment is definite and stern and severe. And David understands that his actions have consequences and he prays in verse 11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David is desperate. He has hit, David is desperate. He has hit rock bottom. His bones have been crushed. He is a wreck. But in the midst of it all, David looks forward because he knows God's heart. He knows that God is a God who forgives. And so he prays, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Joy and gladness are for those who are forgiven. Rejoicing is for those who have been freed from their guilt and their punishment. But how does that come about? How is forgiveness achieved? David recognizes that God doesn't need token offerings or sacrifices. 
but rather what God wants is a change in heart. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I will bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, David recognizes that God doesn't merely want cosmetic changes. He doesn't want people who merely express regret over their actions and continue to live and act the same way. He doesn't want some sort of penance action, a life committed to living in a monastery, a gift of money to the church, or even a mission trip to an unreached people group. These things won't atone for sin. What God desires is a change in heart, in the very being of their person, in their spirit, and to understand that they cannot do it themselves, to understand that they cannot make up for their sin and their actions by merely doing stuff. He wants people who recognize that they are broken and who completely surrender themselves to him and to his mercy. And that is certainly what David has done. But let's just take a moment to dwell on this. Often when we do the wrong thing, we feel remorse for our actions. We feel the guilt from the things that happened. We feel upset that we were caught doing the wrong thing. We feel the pain of guilt. But if you're anything like me, I often stop there. I feel the guilt of sin, the weight of doing the wrong thing, but that's it. I feel remorse but there is no change. What God wants is repentance. He wants us to be sorry for our actions, but then he wants us to confess our guilt to him and to change. Look at what David says in verse, about the change in verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. And in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm going to give myself a new heart, and in my own strength, I'm going to stand firm and change. He doesn't say, I feel so energized that I have stepped past this guilt of doing the wrong thing. I'm going to go out there and conquer the world. I'm going to make a difference. No. He asks God to bring about the change. He says, create in me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit, restore to me the joy of salvation and grant me. David knows that the change he needs can only come by God's doing. He knows that God is the only one who can deal with his guilt and bring him back to a place of joy. And he knows that God is the only one who can deal with his broken and sinful character and who can renew him and make him whole. When you turn on your computer and you start hearing strange sounds coming out of it and it's running a little bit slow, what do you do? Well, you can open it all up, you can pull out all of the cards, you can check the motherboard, you can have a look at the circuitry and capacitors and maybe you could grab out a soldering iron and remove and replace some broken bits and your computer will probably never go again. Or you can take it to an expert, someone who is qualified, who can diagnose the problem who can run the right tests and identify what's really wrong with the computer and get it working. Someone who can find the virus, reinstall the operating system, reload the applications, and fundamentally fix the problem for you. Who can help the computer start over and work again. 
And that's what David is asking of God. Because God is the expert at fixing human hearts. God is the expert at dealing with human sin. He wants to be recreated, to be given a pure heart. He wants to be renewed, to be given a steadfast spirit. He wants to be restored, to be given the joy of his salvation. He wants to be sustained, to be granted a willing spirit. He wants to be overhauled, to be changed from the inside out. And this is God's work, the most qualified expert on the human soul, the work of the one who made us in the first place, in his image. But one of the things I find most remarkable about David and his prayer is the other outcome he prays for. Have a look at these verses. In verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. In verse 14, My tongue will sing of your righteousness. In verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He isn't merely just praying for forgiveness and God's mercy. He isn't just praying that his heart will be changed. He's praying that God will use him to share the great news of his forgiveness. He is praying that his repentance and forgiveness will turn others to God. He wants sinners to repent and be forgiven just like him. Often we can be so shamed by our sin and guilt. We confess it to God, but then we stop. We know that our actions are terrible, and even though we've spoken to God about them, we still don't want anybody else to know that we've done the wrong thing. We trap the guilt of our wrong and don't truly embrace the freedom that comes from forgiveness. David committed adultery. He tried to cover it up, and then he committed murder. And in finding forgiveness, his response, he wants to teach transgressors God's way. He wants to declare God's praise. He wants to sing of the forgiveness found in God. So let me ask you, has the news of God's forgiveness become so stale to you that you're no longer excited by it? Or are you still feeling trapped by your sin so that you aren't able to praise God for what he has done? God's forgiveness is complete. It is whole. It is absolute. It is done. But how can we be sure? Well, David didn't know how God's forgiveness would come about. He knew what God required, but he didn't know how God would deal with the sin. He just trusted that he would. He knew that God had promised that he would rescue his people and that he would rule over them. But several centuries later, the answer came through the birth of Jesus. Jesus, God's own son, came into the world. He taught people about his father. He lived among them. He never sinned or did anything wrong. And then he did what he came to earth to do. He walked up the road to Calvary, carrying a cross, and then died a convicted criminal who is innocent of all wrong. And in his death, as unjust as it was, he took the punishment for all the sin of the world. Jesus suffered and died in our place. And in his death, took our sin in his body and did so willingly. Our sins are forgiven because Jesus died in our place. And so when we accept Jesus as the Lord and ruler of our lives, he forgives us. But if we reject him, 
then he stands as our judge. If we, like David, throw ourselves on God's mercy, then Jesus takes the punishment for our sins. But if we try and do it ourselves, then we stand facing God's judgment and we take the punishment that we deserve on ourselves. God's forgiveness is absolute because the sin is not just thrown away. God's forgiveness is absolute because our sin is still punished. His judgment stands, but it is taken by God himself who became one of us. And so, we can have confidence that we are forgiven. We can be freed of our guilt. Our tongues can be freed to sing God's praises. Our mouths can rejoice because we are free. So don't be fooled. God knows your sin. He knows the wrong that you have done. He knows what is inside your heart and your mind. He knows everything about you. And so, you need to take the blame. You need to confess your sin to God, the one who you have ultimately have wronged. You need to beg God for forgiveness. You need to long for change and to see God working in your life. And you need to trust God to make the change. And you need to tell the world to give thanks to God for his mercy and the salvation in your life. I struggle with this. I trust in Jesus for my forgiveness. But as I look at my heart, I know that I still cling to my sin. I still think that I can fix it. I still think that I can make it right. But I can't. I suspect that if you are honest with yourself, you do the same thing too. But friends, we know the one who can change us. And we know that we need to change. So why don't we pray now that God will bring about that change and thank him once again for the forgiveness that is found in Jesus' death for us on the cross. Because when we do, recognizing that we are broken and crushed, but repentant, full of the knowledge that we are forgiven, we can be filled with joy and rejoice because God has saved us. And we can leave filled with the joy and confidence to share this good news with the whole world. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we are guilty of our sin. We stand before you knowing that we have done the wrong thing. We know that there are things in our hearts and our minds where we continue to cling to the evilness of our ways. We ignore you. We hurt our brothers and sisters. We hurt our friends and our neighbours. We act in ways that are contrary to your law and your commands. And Lord God, as we think of these things now, we confess them to you. We know that we have sinned against you. We know that our actions, while they may be wrong against others, are ultimately against you. And you are the righteous judge over the whole world. And so, Lord God, we throw ourselves on your mercy. We ask for your forgiveness. And we thank you that we have it through Jesus' death on the cross. Lord God, we pray that by your Spirit you would change our hearts and our minds. Lord God, we long to not just be remorseful for our sin, but to be truly repentant. 
Lord God, please change us by your Spirit and please work in our lives. Lord God, we know that in our own strength and by our own efforts, we cannot make that change. Only you can change our hearts. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would renew us by your Spirit. Lord God, we pray that you would create in us a clean heart that seeks to serve you. Lord God, we pray that you would be the one that renews and remakes us in the image of your Son. And Lord God, please fill us with boldness and confidence, knowing that we are forgiven, to sing your praise and to sing glory and honour and praise to your name because you are the one that has redeemed us. And Lord God, please fill us with confidence to go and share the forgiveness that we have found in you with the world. Lord God, please help us to no longer hold on to the guilt of sin. Please help us to no longer hold on to the things that we have done wrong. But Lord God, please fill us with confidence, knowing that we are truly free in your Son. Please fill us with confidence, knowing that our salvation has been purchased, knowing that our sin has been atoned for, that our guilt has been taken away, that our punishment has been dealt with through Jesus' death on the cross. Lord God, please help us to proclaim that to all and everyone we meet. Lord God, you are a great God, and we thank you for everything that you have done. We thank you for your mercy, and we pray that you will draw many other people to you. We pray that they would find and know God's forgiveness too. Lord God, thank you. Amen.